Hello, everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. And my name is Gary Fowler, and I'm the CEO, president, and founder of GSD Get You Done Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. I've been involved in 17 startups and several unicorns. I was on the original management team at Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion, and also EVA.ai, an AI HR tech company that I co-founded with Dr. David Jang. We believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. So it's with great pleasure that I invite my guest today, who's joined us, Donna Edmonds, the CEO of Brainbox Solutions. She's a serial entrepreneur and has had an executive level experience, either CEO or group leadership positions in large multinational healthcare corporations, and then raising capital for funding startups that change clinical practice and make our lives a better place. She's orchestrated and negotiated several access, some of one, some of which were the top 10 diagnostic companies. She's led or been part of numerous executive teams. She's got an incredible background, and with that, I'd like to bring Donna on board. Hi, Donna. How are you? Hi, Donna. How are you doing today? Nice to see you, Gary, and good to be here. I have to admit that I've looked at some of the uh, former series that you've done, and uh, it's an august group. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, a little bit about your background. How in the world did you get involved in the healthcare profession? <clears throat> Um, I originally started out as an emergency medicine nurse who was specialized in critical care. I got a degree in business along the way, but I was at the bedside to start with uh, in ICUs and emergency medicine. And um, I was recruited to industry from, I was running outside of Chicago, um, a large emergency medicine group that staffed several hospitals and staffed several what are now described as urgent care centers. So I was recruited to Baxter, it's headquartered in uh, Chicago, um, because I understood how to talk to and push around a physician, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. Um, and that's yeah, where I really started. Do you have to push uh, or you have to pull physicians? Do you push them or pull them? Um, a little of both. Um, the one thing about nurses and doctors is they do know how to talk to each other. And um, really, if, if it runs well, you see yourselves as equal. And in an emergency room, it's always a team. So um, you learn how to discuss things with physicians and um, not look at them as something godlike. Let's just put it that way. So, but the, but the public looks at them godlike. Yeah. <laughs> They're human beings like everybody else, some of them smarter than others, um, and we'll just leave it there. I've had the benefit of um, surrounding myself with the leaders in each of the spaces that I've had a leadership role in, and that's been uh, very rewarding. So how do you go down through, what's the difference between a great doctor and a mediocre doctor? Um, you are really asking provocative questions. Um, I would say that science, the you know, student of the science and the courage to do the right thing. And what what's the right thing? Is it in the patient's interest, or how do you determine what's right? Oh, it's always in the patient's interest. It always has to be in uh, about the interest of the person in front of you. I got a question for you, Don. Do you ever see situations where the insurance companies want a decision made 
that may or may not be in the best interest of the patient today. Does that happen in the hospital? You're at that when you're talking about that kind of discussion at this point, that's not usually the point where you're interfacing as much as the insurance company. It's usually after the physicians made the decision to ask for something to be done that the consequences, um, you know, really show up. There's all this pre-admission clearance that goes on now for elective surgeries. And of course, that's always uh, a contentious. I'm not a, um, yeah, it's always contentious, just put it that way. Interesting. And then Donna, I got a question for you. They have these concierge doctors now, right? Yes. So is it is it that big a deal to have a concierge doctor uh, compared to a regular doctor, this one where you're setting up? Is it that much different? I have one. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> there you go. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't think a, I think physicians go into medicine to serve patients. The more and and to make you know the world a better place and increase health, etc. And in general, they really want to help people. Um, a lot of them have moved to this kind of a model, so they can in fact do that. Um, I've always, you know, I've been on boards of universities, so I can also academic medical centers, so I can always get access to the best physicians for a specific diagnosis or, um, you know, a surgical procedure that needs to be done. But on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I think the really committed ones have had to move to a balanced concierge medicine approach so that they have, they can create the time to have uh, the, inter the interface. This allows them to create the time to have the interface that they went to medical school for. So, you know, just, just it's interesting to me because I work a lot with ChatGPT now. So we're writing a book with Da Vinci and, and a lot of pieces. But, you know, you talk about um, patients and advocates. So a lot of times those concierge physicians become advocates for uh, the patient, right? And if you have somebody that's pretty well known, they can open doors and help you out a lot. And maybe the difference between getting to living and dying, right? I mean, it, it can be. I don't, I'm not sure as I'd create that much drama around it, but they create enough time so they understand you and take the time enough to understand what's really going on. And just, you know, um, you're not on your own as much. Um, I will tell you that after three or four years with the folks that I'm with, it's like, uh, because they set aside a great, you know, an hour to speak with you. It's like, okay, I know what's going on. You can let me out of here earlier um, because you have that kind of a dialogue, but you have access to their phone, their emails, and they're very responsive, but they've taken the decision to create the opportunity and you've taken the decision to allow that and, and get yourself structured so you can. Not everybody can do that. No, I, not I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you an interesting story. I'm not going to name the hospital, but it's pretty well known here. Um, and and uh, the university, but anyhow, I was in there. I had uh, pancreatitis. I had some really really hot sauce and um, ghost pepper sauce, and I put it on some ribs, and then I had some ice cream. It was bad bad combination. Anyhow, I went to this hospital, very, very bad, and I went into this hospital in the emergency room. They found out I had some stones, and so I go in there into the emergency room. They admitted me to the hospital. I have a special kind of vet and insurance where it's good in one state and not the other, unless it's emergency.
clearly it's an emergency. Anyhow, it just so happens that that hospital that I went into, I happen to know the board members of the hospital. I know a couple of them. And I go in there and I'm sitting around and I'm like in this unbelievable room uh, sitting and uh, then nobody came for a couple of days. It was like weird. It was strange. So I happened to get on LinkedIn and wrote my friends. And I said, listen, I have a question for you. Is the service always this bad in the hospital? And it was more, not more than 30 minutes later, the chief nurse came, chief staff nurse came in to see how I was doing. And then the, um, uh, was a director of surgery, like one of the top doctors in the hospital came in and everything changed at that point. It was just interesting how much, you know, those connections are important and how can we streamline it? I mean, this is for another conversation, but there's got to be something that can be done, seriously, Donna, to make it a better system for everybody, democratized for everybody, because, you know, having the ability to be able to pay a concierge doctor to do it, not everybody has that ability to do it. And at the same time, it has to be done, right? And as our world changes and, you know, uh, economies go up and down, we got to figure out a better way to help each other. And it's just, it was, I'm just fascinated by it because I went through it myself. <laughs> That's why I got a concierge doctor. Well, I will tell you that some of my very best friends are the chairmen of academic medical center emergency medicine programs. And, you know, every day when they talk to me about, and I saw this many patients and discharged them from, um, you know, in triage or had them treated in triage before they could even get into the emergency room. It's very frustrating for the really committed and particularly emergency medicine physicians right now. Mm -hmm. And we, you're right, changing healthcare is top on the agenda. It's not the topic I thought I was signing up for today. No, 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 I just thought I to talk about. Hey, you know, it's interesting because I'm having these conversations with so many people. It's like the topic of the day and they're really concerned. You know, the healthcare costs are going through the roof. You know, I don't know about, you know, my own personal stuff. I, I know what's happening because I, I paid the bills for the company. But, you know, when you're talking $2,200, $2,300 for one month's worth of health insurance, it's crazy. Now, why everybody can't afford that? What happens? And so I'm trying to figure out how we streamline the system. The reason I'm saying that is because I'm using ChatGPT and I'm working with, uh, you know, some neurosurgeons. And developing some companies were actually looking at those some of those kind of issues but it just didn't fascinate i mean you're right in the heart of it so i get a question so you come out you do this thing you're a nurse you go to business school you go to baxter uh you're doing uh public and private diagnostic and device companies then you move into virginia life how did it feel going from a nurse to business um so very early in my career i often tell the story that when I was um, I was charge nurse in the emergency uh, in the critic uh, critic ICU in a hospital, a relatively small hospital, a community based hospital. So charge nurse met. I was the one in charge in the afternoon, and I asked the person I worked for who ran the the ICU one day and said, "Why is it we always get the equipment that we need in the ICU, and the folks out on the floor when I get floated out to there are always short in the equipment they need or staff." And she looked me in the eye and she said, because we're profitable, we're a profit center for the hospital and they are not. So it took, it didn't take me long. I mean, that was, you know, I'm married to a businessman, a man who's owned his own business all his career, but it's, you, you recognize that in healthcare is the same way. If you're in one of the settings that are settings that create revenue for the hospital rather than drain on it. Um, or you can articulate the value, you're in a much better position to get the equipment you need, 
um, get the services you need. And, you know, that really hit me very early in my mid-20s um, as to what you need to focus on. That's why I ended up, instead of uh, getting advanced degrees in nursing, getting our, a degree in business. Interesting. So, you know, as you're going down through your career, you went to uh, immune array. How was it going from being a nurse to being the chairman and CEO? Well, what it was wasn't one stop. Um, I along the way, I was I ran an emergency medicine physicians group with sixty five people in it. I was recruited into Baxter. That was probably the the most profound shift um, because I had already been out and running departments. I was a director of nursing for a hospital uh, right before I ran the the physicians group. I ended ended up coming into Baxter at the group level. So I was never at a single company level. I was always at the group level. So I automatically was thrown in with, you know, there were 10 of us running seven divisions. So I was auto, you know, with really high quality people uh, in a very good organization. Um, it, it re reflects back, but it was right after the American uh, acquisition. So they, you know, I'd post merger um, and, and just learned a lot in that. And I had seven promotions in eight years. So I had a lot of really good experience. And I learned that you just, you know, every time someone asked you to do something, you said, okay, where's the hill? Give me the flag. And you would, you know, you'd get results and you'd move on to the next. So it was, that was the most important experience I think I had. I actually, in behalf of the, that company, I invested in some startups. So I sat on board. So I got lots of really good experience along the way. And then, so as you're going down through it, so when you did, when you, you look at it from a business perspective, did you look at it from the profit and loss? Did you become, did your mind change? And, you know, did you look at the health, you know, how do you, how do you differentiate between what kind of impact you can have on healthcare versus the profit and loss? And does that ever come in? Every day. So, um, you know, I've, been fortunate enough that I've been in a situation where I was always felt like I could do the right thing. Um, you know, there were there were times, um, you know, two career couples, um, times when I was m making sure that I was working and didn't, and couldn't take risks. There were at the other time, um, and or you know, with big promotions that I would have. Uh, and then my husband, whenever, when I was up against something where I'd had to make a decision, it was always a matter of you do the right thing and, you know, I'll back you. So I always felt like I had the wind on my back. Um, I never. Well, had... I, I like that. I like it. Do the right thing and I'll back you. Well, that sounds like a great relationship. Uh, it's over 50 years. So oh my God, that's amazing. I was married as a teenager and we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, so. But I think the most important thing, I've had the benefit of being able to always um, take a look at using smart money to do the right thing for healthcare. So that was really important. I have never entered, what, what, so when I started, you know, one of the topics I we were gonna talk about is what's it like to raise money in tough times. So I raised the fund in 2008. That mm -hmm. was really fun, okay. But the mission of the fund was uh, I was in the middle of central Virginia. This is the home of Philip Morris, Circuit City, CarMax, nothing from, an, uh, nothing from a life science perspective. Um, but we were head, the, I was on the Biotech Research Park board 
appointed by one of the governors. And we recognized that we had technology that was emerging around the university, VCU, and some of the other universities, but no funding to do anything with. So I got put on the board. We decided to start a life science fund and there was no technology. Um, even though, and the, the community, folks in the community all stepped up, um, you know, high net worth folks that lived in the community were solid Virginia citizens. Um, a, a lot of them uh, put money into that fund. They didn't necessarily make a lot of money out of the investments we made, but you can't now in, in central Virginia or in the city of Richmond throw a stone without hitting four, four startup. Uh, life science companies. So we actually allow, we enabled wow. the building of the ecosystem. And now I have to compete for people. Um, when I, there was a time when, you know, we didn't have anybody around to hire into some of these high tech positions. Now I'm competing with other folks. Thermo Fisher has a division here. So building the ecosystem in that case, it, the mission was clear. You raise the money, to, to enable life science startups. So you use smart money to do the right thing. In every one of the other jobs I've taken and the, and the other, like the couple of startups I've done with this particular lead investor, it's always been about changing clinical practice as the, uh, as the centerpiece and then using smart money to do the right thing. So for me, and that's, you know, that's the nurse in me um, yeah. you know, the evangelist, if you will. And I've had a, you know, the benefit to work with some of the best physicians in the country who were aligned in that. I mean, in the business of chest pain management, um, myself and a group of physicians across the world, actually, that we worked with, we literally developed, established, took to market all of the cardiac markers um, that you now are now as part of diagnosis. So when you go into an emergency room now, every blood test that they take to figure out whether you're having a heart attack or you need open heart surgery or you need a stent, this particular group of folks helped develop and, and launch. So it's rare that as a nurse, a lowly nurse, if you will, um, gets a chance to change clinical practice. And I had the opportunity in license, the same kind of capability in brain injury Wow, that's amazing. So let's go back. Let's talk about it. So in tough times, how tough are the times right now in terms of raising money? So let's talk about that from your perspective. And is it the institutional investors are tough or the family offices tough? I mean, how is it? You're talking about now? Yeah. Yeah. So over the years, as I have raised money, invested money, raised funds, been part of advisors to funds, et cetera, you know, there's been a real shift because in the olden days, you know, call it 20 years ago, um, it was a real clear demarcation. There was seed money available. You knew where to go for that. There was mezzanine financing. You knew where to go to that for that. And then there was institutional big VCs and, and the VCs would break themselves up in, you know, investing in mid-sized companies or larger investments. Um, over time, and at before it was, high net worth in, you know, family offices gave money to VCs to, to do the professional investment. Right. And there was a whole series, uh, a whole period in which family offices thought they could do it on their own with that. And they were going to invest their own money. I actually am seeing a slight shift back 
now, I think, in the last, I would say, probably two or three years, because I'm talking to a lot of family offices right mm -hmm. now, um, where they are, they've either gotten better because they've made bad bets, or they are going back to aligning themselves with more professional investment capabilities, whether it's a small family house or clustered together with a group who often in the BC days, they'd call it syndicate, but you know, they invest together. I will tell you that the life science fund that we had built um, was a series of committed high net worths, really savvy, you know, ex-presidents, ex-CEOs, ex-IPO guys who'd made a lot of money, um, who, who were doing the right thing. But always they were driving to do something they believed in. More important, and, you know, when somebody asks me about picking investors, I won't let just anybody invest along in the companies that I'm running. You've got to have the right investor base and you've got to have the right board and they have to be aligned with at least the objectives that I have, which mm -hmm. is to build the company as the primary focus and the company becoming successful makes them successful versus investing in a company thinking it's going to be a, a big financial hit. Mm -hmm. um, I always categorize everybody who gives me money. Are they strategic or are they financially motivated? Everybody mm -hmm. at the end doesn't put money into a company to lose it. But if they are if they are only financially motivated and not about the mission, I won't take it. And I've turned down investors. Wow. So that's interesting. So tell us a little bit about uh I know you've, you're doing uh, Brain Box Solutions. Tell us a little bit about that and then Southeast Life Sciences. Oh, okay. So um, Brain Box Solutions, um, I had the opportunity while I was, uh, so as I le uh, was leading, as I did the fund, I was lead investor in a technology we brought to the United States from Israel. Mm -hmm. I, will, I mean, the story goes back, one of our governors, actually George Allen it was, um, recognized that we needed to de develop more technology in, in Virginia. He developed a relationship with Israel ahead of many other governors. We were the only state that has a, a Virginia-Israeli um, advisory board where you, where you talked about bringing high-tech technology from Israel to, to the states or to, the, to Virginia. So we had invested in quite a few Israeli startups. One of them was Immunaray. I led the round of investing, became the CEO at the board's request because the person I brought in, they didn't think had enough urgency. Um, and during that period of time, one of my cohort or colleagues from the cardiac marker days was at Hopkins. And she asked me to, she asked me to come up and see her and shut, she shut the door and laid out a portfolio of discovery in traumatic brain injury that I'd never, that was, you know, way above, uh, filed ahead of all the rest of the folks, uh, any of the other big companies. Um, and I went to my board at that point and said, I think you'll be happy. I mean, I'd like you to allow me to in license this in. Um, and we'll see what we can do with it under the cover. So we brought it in and now it's the leading asset. Immunary is now in suspense and um, it is the leading asset. Um, and so we invested quietly or got um, investments from other outside companies in the technology platform while it was under the cover of Immunary. Um, and then we spot um, an investor who had led another round with me at a previous company. I'd licensed some technology in Germany and 
came to me and said, I am seeing every day, every week, five or six companies who claim they have the, um, the, re, the answer to the TBI problem. They have 100 subjects and they think they're going to take it on. And it is the most disorganized space I've ever been in. This is, the, this is a VC that um, supported the first tabby. Wow. Um, device so you know very de dedicated for first of kind kind of things and he said i don't think there's anybody else that can straighten this group out this field out except you i will back um the technology i've watched you take this is like 10 years after my first relationship with him and i've known him a long time and he said but you've got to spin it out and you've got to run it so i went to the rest of the board members and you know we ended up spinning it out as a standalone so by the time that it was a standalone company and we raised our series a it had already been in development for about six years quietly and that's you know we'd made a lot of progress we'd had some corporate um, support um, i was an nfl ge award winner when they had that head healthy challenge um, and had some additional support from corporations. And so we spun it out in 2018 and went, uh, was, took our first study that we did while it was inside the other company um, to the FDA as a pilot, got breakthrough designation, and then COVID hit. So mm -hmm. on the subject of, we were making great progress. Um, we had a big European investor, um, one of the leading ones globally and certainly in Europe, uh, we're in for $10 million, it signed a term sheet, uh, we're ready to invest, and then COVID hit, and they were scared. And so they backed away at the last minute. So I had to scramble then. Um, two years later, I had to do another scramble because a similar story of a large um, investor of a sovereign country um, was wanting to come in just as we were getting breakthrough designation, and it you know, still had had difficulties moving the money, et cetera. So I had to scramble again. So I've had two $10 million for sure investments in place um, and both, you know, they, they went away. So you have to continue. You have to have a good board. You have to be raising money all the time, but you have to be absolutely focused on the mission so you can keep telling the story. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, but as long as you keep making um, hitting, they call them milestones, but I, you know, I call them progress points. They aren't necessarily the big valuation incremental uh, levers that people like you get an FDA clearance, but, you know, you start to study correctly. You, you keep enrolling the state uh, patients at a faster pace than normal. You bring in more and more of the leaders in the industry who leave other companies to go stand by you who will stand by on the stage and say, nope, she's doing it right, or we're doing it right. So you just continue to make progress every day and you can stay funded. Um, the thing I like to advise people around you, you have to be capital efficient and you can't, I don't think it's smart to over raise funds. Like I've never gone out to raise like 20 million. Um, sometimes it's, you feel more comfortable if you've got a lot of money in the bank but your company doesn't run as efficiently and leanly if you've got too much. So mm -hmm. I always like to be, you know, just enough ahead that we can always keep going, but also because of the quality of the investors I have, I always know that, 
you know, one of them's got their hand on my one shoulder and the other one's got the other one. And I always know they have my back. So yeah, if you get if you get up against it, you know, you're never, ever going to be out of funds, even though it feels tight sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I got a question for you. You know, if you have a company and I just I'm, I'm just curious about this. I have uh, one of our companies, a molecular isolation biodent company. It takes it that it's uh, 3000 times more effective. A uh, uh, guy named Jack Kepler is the person that the top iodine expert. They have it. The company's got contracts. How in the world, what's the best way for a company like that to um, to get the funding? I mean, they have uh, agreements in place and, and those kind of things. But what's the best way for a company that's that, you know, can make a profound impact? You're right in the hospitals and they have they have agreements in place. Well, again, in a lot of details, but what's the best way for funding? Because it's, you know, I found some investors, but they, you need somebody that really gets it. You know what I mean? That really understands Say, Listen, this is going to make a dent in the universe. Yeah. You, again, your investors have to be very clear in what you're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. I will tell you that because I'm setting a new standard of care for traumatic brain injury and concussion management, I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how many of my investors our ex-hockey players or um, NBA all-stars or folks who have had a concussion and know that something has to be done and they're in because they understand it. So they've whoever you're talking to has to be have a real clear idea of the impact. And, you know, you say you have contracts in place, but sometimes contracts are just documents that have information on them, but the execution and adoption isn't there. I mean, market adoption is the key in everything. Mm-hmm. And and just because you're doing a contract doesn't mean that there's a commitment to execute. Mm-hmm. I found that lots of times over the years. Um, you know, people talk about it, but they don't necessarily, you know, they don't they don't necessarily move on it all the time. So it's it's really the adoption of an execution of that's the key issue. Um, it, now again, when you were describing it, is this a an, um, it, this is not a pharmaceutical? This is uh, an antimicrobial. Yeah, I'm antimicrobial. Right. Yeah. Right. So I mean, it's it's. In fact, I have some here actually. <laughs> well, you I, know, I, I wanted to try it, Donna. I said I'm gonna. You know, my dog had the skin infection, and the the vet said there's nothing that can be done. So I said, ah, what the hell? I'm gonna take this and put it on because it's like this, yeah, super iodine. And it's no more toxins than, than regular iodine. Anyhow, I put it on my dog, and I, it was unbelievable. She Her skin cleared up. And we had tried for years to get something. I tried medicine. I tried pills. I tried everything. And, it, you know, so whatever it is, um, it's just interesting. I just that as an example because, you know, part of it is trying to find the money. Where do you find the money that's the right money? And I think the challenge today is how to find the right investors because it's like it's inside that network, but it's like the secret squirrel society. You don't know who to talk to. Right. That's exactly right. That it, And um, there are more and more folks specializing in, I mean, that's how I met you, remember, um, who are who have a database of high net of family offices that they're working with. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't tell you how many have come to me and said, you know, we have this network. I can guarantee that you will, you know, that we'll get you funded and um, this is the process and upfront there's this much, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, you pay as you go along the way. You've got to, you have, you have to talk. Somebody told me 
somebody who just sold a, a really good friend of mine who sold his company for 5x we were colleagues in another company before he said boy did i have to kiss a lot of frogs so you know you just have to keep talking and you get better for me i get better at um understanding early on where you spend your time mm -hmm. you can you know you take a look at the profile you you can either say in five minutes i'm a fit i mean there are funds that have time fits size fits you know i've only got this much in my fund and i've got one more investment so somebody who knows how to screen that for you so mm -hmm. that when you go you are looking at in the sales jargon a qualified prospect if you will yeah so that you that you don't waste that upfront time uh getting to the right people for sure um I'm resonating to what you talked about because one of the companies we invested in from that was uh, started in Israel, we brought over here was an antimicrobial and um, you know, it got traction in some big hospital systems, but it was really bad board management mm -hmm. and um, friction within the board and the management players that got in the way. So, very important to keep a good team, very important to have your team understand, you know, your mission and stay with you. The worst thing in the world is to have somebody that's been with you for three years gets, you know, recruited away or leave because they don't understand where you're going. Everybody's got to be on the same train. Um, and it never really got to the capability that I knew it could have. I wasn't running it. My partner was. Um, but because it, it, it dealt with board friction, management, um, egos got in the way of a really good contract and, and the person on the buyer side didn't get along with the person inside the board and then that slowed things down. So it's, um, you just can't let friction happen. No, I hear you. We, it's, it's tough sometimes, isn't it? It's amazing how people get egos when you're on boards. People are people. <laughs> Rich, yeah. high. Short, fat, tall, skinny, um, they're all people. And you always have to understand what's going on in the other person's head mm -hmm. and, and continue the process. You always have to be making progress every day. Um, I used to have an anal analogy is once you get some momentum, you know, you're, you're a train leaving the station. You can always, you know, you can always push through rubble in front of you. Um, if you get rocks, it's, you know, rubble, rocks and boulders. If it rocks fall in your way and that's people getting mad at each other and something happening that you may not have predicted. You can usually power through rocks, but if you come around a bend and a boulders in front of you, you mm -hmm. stop the momentum. So the key is to always keep the momentum going and then mm -hmm. just always look ahead on what could go wrong. I mean, that's the old sales adage. And also from a nursing perspective, you're always thinking about what the complication could be that you're avoiding. Yeah. So, you know, I have fallen back so often on my emergency medicine days. Folks have asked me why I'm able to make decisions as quickly as I can. It's because I always knew then you only you only have so much data in front of you. You make a decision based on the data you have. You go with it. More data, you can pivot, but you, you can't overanalyze. You have to just know when is the right time to make the call and keep moving. But keeping yeah, moving no. is the key. Well, I like that. When you know you need to know when to make the call and keep moving. Here. <laughs> yep, I'm here. Can you hear me? Gary's frozen. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Donna? Hello, hello, hello. 
Can you hear That's me? That's right. And you can you can pivot afterwards. Yeah, well, you were frozen for a minute. You can pivot afterwards. Um, new, I can. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little delay. I can delay hear you, I can hear you Gary. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> so, yes. Donna, listen, well, closing thoughts and how do people get a hold of you? Can you hear me? It's not know. me. Huh. Huh. I have a good connection, too. What is going on? <laughs> I don't know. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me, Donna? Can you hear me? Okay. Chat. Oh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, Donna Edmonds. Um, uh, yeah, I can hear you just fine, Gary. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, again, you know, you can brain box solutions. You can look it up. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and I do answer that. I am not. I am not a Facebook aficionado, um, but you know, uh, certainly I can. Anybody who's interested, um, Jane, you're a very able assistant, can get in contact with me, and I appreciate being here. It's been fun getting to know you and watch the uh, watch the other shows. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, Donna, and thanks to everybody for joining one more time. GSD presents. My name is Gary Fowler, and I'm your host. Stay tuned for another exciting edition coming Thursday. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy, and I'll be back to you soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you.